Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I have some good news for you. Of course, I'm sure that you've already heard the bad news. Black Rock City won't be built in the Nevada desert this year. However, the Burning Man Festival has not been canceled. Instead, this year's nine-day festival is going to take place online. This year, Burning Man will be virtual, and the good news is that there will be a Psychedelic Salon theme camp at the Virtual Burn, and you are invited to join us. Now, as for the details, well, (laughs) there aren't any right now, actually, uh, other than the fact that it is going to happen. But all of the planning for our theme camp will take place on our Discord server. And it's free, and if you haven't already joined us there, all you need to do is go to psychedelicsalon.com, click the Discord invite link link near the uh, top of the page, and you'll then be able to join Discord if you haven't already done so. You know, it's free and no credit card info is required, so uh, go ahead and sign up and join us there. There's uh, actually a lot of other things going on. But once you've logged into the Psychedelic Salon's Discord server, you'll see a channel labeled Virtual Burning Man. And that's where we're going to be planning the details of our theme camp. Uh, If you've ever been involved in a theme camp before, you know that uh, in the early days it gets kind of chaotic, but uh, we'll get a a plan eventually. You know, it seems to me that uh, with fellow saloners all around the world, we might be able to uh, have some kind of a function hosted by our camp 24 by 7 during the virtual burn. So uh, at least it's something we ought to look into. Also, uh, on our Discord server now, uh, each week I post the connection information for the two live salons that I do on Mondays and Thursdays. And uh, thanks to my supporters on Patreon, we uh, have been able to open up these four live events each week to our personal friends and to everyone on the salon's Discord server. So uh, even if you can't afford to be a Patreon supporter, uh, well, you can still attend these live salons each week and visit with some of your fellow saloners. These uh, salons, by the way, are held at 6.30 p.m., first at, on London time, which is 10.30 in the morning here on the West Coast. Then the second salon of each day is held at 6.30 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, I'm sorry about this, I still don't have a, a good time set up for our friends in New Zealand, Australia, and Asia, but uh, I'll try to figure out somehow to connect with you guys as well. Now right now, I'm going to uh, play a recording of last Monday's Pacific Time Live Salon, where our guests were Niles Heckman and Rack Razam, who are the uh, filmmakers behind the Shamans of the Global Village series. And if you were with us here in the salon back in June of 2017, you'll remember when the two of them joined us here to talk about the first film in this series. And uh, I'll put a link to the trailer for this new film in the program notes for today's podcast, which you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com. So uh, now let's listen to a conversation with Niles and Rack that, along with a few of our fellow saloners, was held last Monday evening. And uh, we'll join them here a little bit after we uh, started recording the session. Uh, and this morning, uh, a young man uh, named Nikita came in. He's, he'd come in a few times over the last couple of years with our, our live salons. And, and uh, he lived in St. Petersburg. And he's living out in the 
countryside now, but he had a really fascinating observation about uh, Putin. Is he said that uh, Putin has seemed to be kind of shocked because he's been doing this strongman routine for so long that he <clears throat> he said that all of a sudden he's releasing power to I don't know if they call them states, provinces, whatever, <clears throat> but it's much like it's going on here where. Trump doesn't have a national policy, and Putin is not coming out with one. He's letting the different areas do it. And uh, 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 this uh, Nikita, he said that uh, it's kind of fascinating because people aren't used to not having uh, government control from the central uh, power. So there's a lot of strangeness in the air, which uh, I think we've, we've got a, a enough people here to get started that I can start with some strangeness going back thousands of years to the uh, uh, peyote plant and uh, start talking about, about your, uh, your video, which we'll get to in a, in a bit. Uh, and, and I have to say, I, I had no imagination, I had no idea the peyote harvest was like that. It, you know, I've read about it and all, but until you can see what you guys have documented uh, with really high-quality video, I'm just, I was just blown away. But let me, let me wind back a couple years, and, and you guys had just finished Shamans of the Global Village 1, and, uh, you know, you were about to start rolling it out. And how, how did you get that uh, seen by people? How did you raise the uh, wherewithal to do the second one? And give us the, bring us up to date to how, how we got to the, but how, how did you get from there to here? Because it couldn't have been easy. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the initial rack and I'll kind of segue into episode two after you do? It's, it's sort of like a con- condensed version of the portrait of the artist as a, a starving young man. So we're not getting any younger. Um, you know, uh, the series is um, what we believe that is part of our calling as documentary filmmakers and as people who are on our own spiritual paths to document. The same really happened with episode one in that I didn't really, I did choose to make it with Niles, but it's like it fell into our laps working with the, uh, the Mexican shaman. And the same with episode two is that there was a long time between episodes, but essentially uh, we thought about, we have a, a plan for episodes of what we would like to film in different regions around the world and achieving a budget from that. What we did accomplish with episode one was creating um, a community around our documentary and around the issues that are important that we uh, look at in Shamans of the Global Village around earth medicines and shamanism and the, the, the rollout, if you will, of uh, these experiences and the necessity of reconnecting to the relationship with Earth. So our community has grown in the many thousands on our mailing list. Uh, You know, we're very grassroots. It's pretty much, we said that it's usually a shoestring budget, but this episode, episode two was just the strings because there was no shoes. It was like $3,000 and we were just sleeping on the dirt ground with the indigenous tribes for three, four, five days, whatever it was. It was very grueling. It was very, uh, trying uh, to make, but that's how you do it. That's how you get in there and you become part of the community and you are allowed in to document it because they believe in who we are and what we're doing. So we feel where all systems go. We want to do future episodes. And to do that, we really rely upon the goodwill of the community to support our uh, our series and to download or hire it or help promote it on their pages. Yeah, and each episode of this thing is a monumental task. It's like a pilgrimage in itself. And like Rack said, it is a spiritual quest to do each episode to, you know, find synchronistically what who we're going to be featuring for the focus per episode, 
what region of the world we'll be in, uh, the, the struggles and the trials and the tribulations of just making that, you know, actualizing that is a huge effort. Each, uh, each episode is like making a feature documentary film, which is a, just a mass. You seem to have frozen there, Niles. Can you maybe pause your video and see if that helps it a little bit? Sure. Oh, should I just stop video? Oh, just, just, stop, just stop video is all you have. Yeah, sure. There we go. So, um, yeah. Did you get all of that or should I repeat? Are we good? It's the last repeat. Yeah. Okay. I was just saying, so the reason it took a few years to make a, an episode, the reason we had a few years between episodes is just because each episode is this monumental undertaking of making a feature documentary film in its own right. And uh, hopefully as we continue to actualize more episodes, well, they'll happen more often than the band tool makes an album. I like to say, but um, yeah, each one is very, each one is very life-changing uh, in making it. And it's a, it's a huge process to do, but it's extremely rewarding in many ways. And yes, we're very proud of both episodes to date. Say, say, remind me of how the two of you guys first met and how, how, how the, the, the whole overall project came together. I mean, this is a, a life work for two of you. And how, how did you guys come together to figure out you wanted to do this? I think essentially we, we, we met through the internet and our respective podcasts that we were doing and projects and reaching out as media makers around consciousness issues. But really, let's cut the chase. It was Burning Man. What year was it, Niles? 2014? <laughs> yeah, you know, let's just, say, let's just say there were initiations with uh, doors of consciousness that were open to perception. There was a trampoline. There was a starry night. And there, there was an, a few allies in that. Um, you know, you know what I love about Niles is that he comes from a, a cinema, cinematography background and working in film and doing post-production and rendering. And he has this uh, language of filmmaking or even of production within um, programs. So he'll, he'll be in a, uh, a consciousness elevated state and he'll be looking at the polychromatic aberrations in the, the arc of the ring of light and using all this wonderful terminology that is so astute and so appropriate for helping to anchor in words some of the visionary experiences that can be perceived. So he, he has a deep shamanic ability. There's something very close in filmmaking to some aspects of shamanism or in the sense of capturing reality, telling a story, the storytelling. I think it's the storytelling aspect of shamanism, which is often overlooked even in plant medicines that words are magic, you know, we're casting a spell with our language and that um, the, the container we make within the ceremony of producing an episode is the ceremony of the film and what we're bringing to, to the audience. Uh, I was going to comment on the fact how it's, it's obvious the two of you share a, a psychedelic type of consciousness because of the way that these come together. But what's also beautiful is that the two of you have really uh, complementary but separate talents in the, the filmmaking world. And that, that uh, you know, Niles has the, uh, the thematic, the writing, the, the things, and you have the shamanic touch in the background there. And the two of you have jointly uh, put, put a team together uh, uh, I was gonna, I was gonna say Abbott and Costello or Laura and Hardy. <laughs> the teams I know, but I don't mean it that way. It, it, you two uh, really have uh, created some beautiful work together, and and uh, I think that uh, speaks well for what I would call psychedelic consciousness, because you know you have to have artistic uh, <laughs> differences. I'm sure it's it's actually like we're married, and you know I've, I found this in good partnerships. I used to be in the advertising industry a few lifetimes ago, and even in the countercultural art world making things. It's like 
there might be an art director, there might be an art talent, but there's a, a partnership where the, the, the skills are pooled together to be greater than the sum of the parts. And Niles and I often comment upon this, that we, we're very comfortable and we understand each other and we have the right temperaments to work together. I think as we go over the years and our relationship deepens, it is sometimes a bit like a, a media version of an old married couple with its pros <laughs> and cons. Uh, but, but together it does create the work and it's that alchemical union. And interestingly enough on this show, what we've seen very organically develop is that as well as having a lead talent or uh, focus as the character of the caretaker of the medicines, who is the, the curandera or the shaman or the medicine man or woman, and we do definitely want to feature more women as the series progresses. Um, there's also other roles and we've, it's just, it's like this configuration which happens in that there's often a, um, a liaison or a helper or an apprentice or someone else who is also working with the medicine and in service to the path. And they often become a character in the stories too. That happened in episode one and in episode two, where there were people with the calling who were working with the, 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 the main medicine person who become part of our crew and add to the crew as we go. And the other members of the crew, like we had the craziest synchronicities. That's why I, I really understand that this isn't just making media. It's making media about shamanic and uh, consciousness and spiritual issues. But at the same time, it's being guided by those streams as well. So we, we our, our hire car broke down on the first day of shooting and like within three minutes, I get a phone call from like, this other filmmaker who's in the area looking for the witch owl on their pilgrimage who I'd met at Weeback, the World Buffalo Various Congress, six months before. And he was like, do you know where they are? I go, yeah, we know where they are. We're going. I go, do you have room in your car? He goes, yeah. I go, do you still have your drone camera? He goes, yeah. Do you want to pull teams and we'll do the footage together? He goes, yeah. And we just continued, like, with a little hiccup along the way during Mercury Retrograde. It was crazy. But, like, that idea of the path and of being guided to make this media or supported to make this media has been very strong in each episode so far. So, so you, you started, uh, both of you started to allude to uh, uh, selecting the next topic, how you do that. How, do, how you know, the, with such a wide range of available topics, uh, I assume the locale is one, something you can get to relatively inexpensively, but how, how did you go about picking this as the subject for this particular uh, sub second in your series? It's interesting you say that because we have eyes on doing a, an episode about Iboga, Ibogaine in Africa, in Gabon, with the Buiti tribe. And that would be like a $50,000 episode to do. So because of the cost of that, it's kind of pushed back later in the schedule. But one one actual real way that things get done is based upon how cost effective they are. So we we had numerous potentials that would we're going to land for the second episode as we had finished the first. And some of the things never kind of came to fruition. There were a few doorways that potentially were going to open, but then, you know, closed. And then, so here we are, you know, I think it was two years after the first episode. And then I got an interesting insight from a friend that was based out of Tijuana, Mexico and his kind of fellow group of friends that are all essentially Mexican Americans. They bounce between Tijuana and Los Angeles and they were telling us about how one of their comrades has a very close relationship with the Marikame and the, of the Huchol people. So it was, it just happened in a very short notice that they were doing their pilgrimage to Weracuta, which is this holy land of peyote that they do annually. And right, the Huchol people have been doing this thing for thousands of years. So we got this insight, Lorenzo, like I think it was literally two weeks before it was actually going to occur. 
So we had to scrounge this thing together very quickly. And again, we got some, you know, pre-donations. Generally, it's nice if you can survive off the actual sales of a final episode or film. It's, it's a little bit tough sometimes when you have to ask people for money cold without actually having made anything. But we did have some donations that kind of help us, helped us pave our way. We had sales from the first episode that helped kind of, you know, allow us to, with just a very small skeleton crew, essentially Rack and myself and our friend Tom Askew, you know, we all kind of in very, when, because we're such a little tiny crew, we can very quickly make things happen. So we hopped on board this offer that, you know, this gentleman pr- provided to us. And it was pretty amazing to get such a special offer because it's a very special thing to be invited on this pilgrimage. Right. Yeah. And that in its own right is just a deep, deep, you know, spiritual practice for people. And, you know, the, the tribe that's been doing this for so long and this, this group in Tijuana's unique relationship and connection with it is how it actually came into fruition. So, and that's how this show has to be made. The show could not be made with a traditional film crew, you know, with uh, large sets and, you know, huge productions. It, it would always have to be an intimate thing, regardless of how many resources we have to make it. So it's, it's a beautiful blend of, yes, our skill sets, but it also is not only a, a pilgrimage each time, it's also uh, a learning experience. And then it's also the kind of the perfect, like Rack said, alchemical cauldron to make it happen with our skill sets in a tiny, tiny unit, tiny cell. But, you know, you guys, go, go ahead. What? I was going to say, one of the, the, the not maybe seen by the public ramifications of the way we do things is that we are invited. We were basically invited with the first episode and the second episode to come into that, that intimate situation of ceremony and not just ceremony, which is the heart of showing the medicine, but everything that leads up to that container and that moment, which is the preparation, the, the personality of the person, um, the service, uh, the, the ramifications in their lifestyle. But I, I just say that, you know, we, we were planning before all the um, world upheavals hit, you know, recently to do episode three in Peru with the San Pedro cactus with a, a female practitioner who's very uh, integral in July. And that may not happen now with travel bans and, and, and so forth. But in the pattern I've seen of the two episodes we've done and the future episodes, there's a willingness of um, medicine people and also of indigenous people, because we, we want to portray people that are integral. And obviously there can be changes in reputation and shamanism is a, a loaded field, especially when I say shamanism, I mean the Western interface with indigenous caretakers of medicines and the, the money and the medicine dynamics and power dynamics and a lot of issues that we've faced in different aspects of our communities globally. Um, but in general, I'm saying that there's a willingness of indigenous cultures to welcome media people in if they're integral, if they're uh, showing what their message is. And that's what hopefully we've captured at least part of the message of uh, Don Jose uh, Ramirez and, and the witch hole and their relationship with Peyote and what's behind that, that relationship with the planet and the reason why plant and earth medicines are so important with all the issues of supply and demand and commodification. It's still important that people connect through those portals with an, with a lineage, you know, with something that's only with respect and in the right relationship um, but has an opportunity to connect through the portals of, of earth medicines to the planet and to themselves, which is even more crucial in this day and age with coronavirus and separation and 
finding a vision for moving forwards. So I really applaud the Indigenous peoples we have worked with and, and hope to work with in the future, that they feel it's the time to bring their message out to, to the greater communities of the world. Well, what you just said, Rack, is, is something that many, many people in the world had felt for some time, but are, are, the word is spreading. <clears throat> and I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but uh, my last corporate job, I was in the marketing department and I, you know, I don't think marketing is a very honest job, but I had a son to get through college and it was a really expensive school. So uh, I took the job. And so I still kind of think in that, uh, that crippled form there, but uh, you, you two are in, in such a beautiful spot right now from a number of perspectives. Number one is the knowledge that you're preserving in your film is is really important to to get that message out not just in a book I, you know i've read some books about about some of these people some of these uh, events but it'd be a chapter or something but you took us along and and you know it at at one point i started saying wow this is going kind of slowly and then i realized well that's what that's all about it's a very reverent spiritual uh you know mission and and that's something that needs to be preserved, number one. Number two, you have two excellent examples you've done. <clears throat> number three, you're a very small group. Uh, so financially, uh, you can do a lot of things, num uh, you know, on a lower budget. Number four, uh, and I'm just now learning this because we set up this Discord server uh, two and a half weeks ago, and there's 300 people on it now, and a number of psychedelic societies around the country, and a couple of you know, other uh, countries are starting screenings on you know live stream screenings where they're they're raising funds for the the people afterwards they're they're showing your your video and the collecting funds and they're they're doing it all kinds of different ways but all i'm trying to point out is there's a real need right now for new information you're coming out and preserving some and if if I were you, I would set up some sort of a crowdfunding thing that had two projects. Uh, the, you get to the first level and you go to Peru and do thus and so, and the next level you go to Africa and do Iboga or something like that. I'm, you know, you you guys have a lot more ideas about this, but you you'd probably want two goals in the event that you kind of overshoot the first one. But then again, uh, your your budgets can be low enough. And you, you need to put in some kind of reserve saying, you know, we might have to go on foot if there's no airfare anymore, you know. But, you know, I think that you can, you can get a lot of exposure through the psychedelic community and, and all of the interconnections that I'm seeing. You know, I get up in the morning, uh, and I've been off of the DW server for 10 hours and there's a hundred messages I've missed or, you know, in the mm -hmm. posts and stuff like that. There's a lot of one on one finding the others going on. And this is just a very, tip of the iceberg that's starting to happen with uh, uh, with the shutdown that we have. People are being forced to look at other things. But, at, you know, we're going to get sick and tired of just sitting around talking to one another after a while. We have to have some screenings of videos and stuff like that. And if you were going to do something like this, at, you'd have a, a trailer either at the beginning or the end of each video, maybe probably at the end, saying, hey, we've got two more projects and you could help us go to this crowd crowdfunding site it's an opportunity you ought to think about at least because uh you're i think you guys are in the right place at the right time and we really need you to do more of what you do <laughs> yeah well, go join us join our yeah. team we, we need a marketing person we're two filmmakers we're the artists we, we need a marketing arm we really do i'm serious any any logistical support one of the best I, ways I, that I people can, can support is to I, you know, I can promote the it from their pages yeah 
I'll put the word out that you need some promoters. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a dusty old fart. I'm just really too old to, to get back in the game again. You know, it's all I can do to do a few uh, podcasts and live uh, salons. But, uh, yeah, you, you, uh, uh, I, I know who we need to get a hold of a couple of people that I'll, I'll, uh, mention. Maybe somebody. You know what we were planning for episode three before the world collapsed was, um, exactly that. We did this with episode one to uh, offer for a certain price, like people come along on the shoot. Like, so they're, they're, they're getting a week's worth of ceremony, hanging with the indigenous tribe, learning about the medicine. It's like a retreat where we're filming the documentary and to make that as, you know, one of the tiers of a donation that they could come on the shoot and support the, the shoot happening. So they're all good ideas and we're open to community. That, that's all we have. You know, that's a, a great idea for somebody to come along on the shoot and, and uh, you might want to set it up in a way that you could sponsor someone to come up. If you know a young person who's uh, interested in, in these uh, medicines and all and, and you're a, a Silicon Valley millionaire, you could sponsor a young college student to go along with you or something like that, too. Yeah, you know, and, and it's, it's good to highlight, Lorenzo, and I appreciate you saying that, but it's always so trying and difficult when you try and mix any sort of what could be argued as, you know, spiritual content with anything commercial. So there, there in a sense, you have two juxtaposed ends of two, two opposite ends of the coin that are so it, it's always a delicate balance between trying to highlight something like I do in my work, which is make having a background working in Hollywood and then kind of essentially high end game cinematics and, and commercials you know, taking the content of what is just kind of this base chakra, low resonant corporate commercial content. And then instead of just doing that solely, use that skill set, the production values that you can make from that and make things that are more of esoteric or occult content. So all of my personal work tries to do that. And Shamans of the Global Village is certainly one aspect of that. And that way, you've when you when you combine proper professional production values with content that's more perennial philosophy or deep spirituality, then you've got something that could be an element that lasts. And just like you do with your podcast, you know, when you're playing an, an old Robert Anton Wilson lecture or something, somebody can listen to that 50 years from now and it's still got legs and it's still timeless. And it's, it's, it's of excellence. It's not going to just, you know, fade into the forgotten shadows of history. So one thing that this show does is having a video component to that and a professional one at that, even though it's small, small budgets we can still get a lot of of good looking material out of it that has something to say and just like you said i mean you're the host of the psychedelic salon and it's so crucial to know about these ceremonies and to see footage of them it's like even folks like us haven't even seen what an actual huchol ceremony looks like so to get access to these tribes in a respectful way and then also document what they're doing in a very cinematic way is a treasure and that's that's part of the series that i think is a huge specialty. There's been plenty of documentaries made on all sorts of entheogenic medicines. There's been past documentaries on the Huchol. But of course, we're, we're very proud of how this is uh, doing exactly what I just said, hopefully. And um, yeah, we appreciate any support that anybody always can give because this is always a group. You, you know, it's, it, what your, your work is a really, you know, I think it is, of it as a, like an archaeological treasure for 50 people 50, 100 years from now, yes. you know, because yeah. a lot of this is going to be gone. But the message that you have right now uh, is so timely because uh, the the world at large that has not had much uh, occasion to look into what shamanism is, uh, think these are some uh, uneducated people who are just doing drugs or something, you know. But, but we all know that the psychedelic medicine, plant medicines, 
draw you to the earth. And if we ever have needed to have a connection, a deep connection with the planet earth, it's right now. Uh, I know I, I make this metaphor. It sounds like a joke in a way is that uh, Gaia uh, was, uh, you know, told us that she had to go some errands to run. She's okay. You kids be nice, uh, be nice to each other. And I'll be back in a while. And she comes back a few millennia later and she says, my God, look at the mess you've made of this place. You guys go to your room. You're all grounded until you can figure out a way to clean this thing up. Well, <laughs> part of what your message is, is that these plant medicines are what uh, bring us back into the earth, into the, the plants and the, the fabric of the earth. And I think the more that you can focus that in your, uh, uh, you know, promos and things like that about, you know, what do these people know who have been living in, in uh, harmony with the earth for millennia? What do they know that we need to learn from them? That's, that's really kind of the message that I think you're mm -hmm. doing uh, in a large part. Yeah. And, you know, we're always aiming to highlight the proper indigenous context of the container of doing these medicines, right? Where it's not like you're just doing them in your kind of scuzzy Chicago apartment. You're doing them in, with the lineage of the tribe, hopefully with somebody that's studied with the tribe is apprenticed with the elders and, um, you know, has that long lineage of the pilgrimage, the experience, the ceremonies. And um, yeah, I mean that, that in its own right is, is a, is an important thing to always try and capture and highlight. And uh, it's in that right, in that regard, it's uh, the first two episodes I think have been pretty successful at that. And we certainly continue to hope and hopefully lay that out. Let's let's uh, let's talk about this, this your episode a bit, and then we'll open up to questions from other people. But go ahead first, Rack. What are you going to say? I was just going to say if there's a show of hands of people who have watched episode two or even one of Shamans of the Global Village, just wondering. We can't see okay. most people's cameras off. Not too many. Oh, a few people. There's uh, there's three I've seen so far, uh, but uh, not everybody has their cameras on either. Uh, you, and you know what I'll do? You know what I'll do, Lorenzo? For those, so for the folks that showed up here, I'll, I'll send you guys like a link for the next 24 hours where you can just watch it for free. Because it is something that we sell because, of course, it's such it's months and months and months of work to finalize an episode. But that's kind of the least I can do for people giving us this the time this evening. So that, That's really nice of you. And that yeah. way you guys then, to, to pay them back when we uh, do the podcast, you can add your comments in the comment section and uh, uh, give it a little plug. That way it gets up higher in the rankings. So uh, uh, it, it, it's, it, it, the, the, particularly by the end of the uh, film, it just blew me away. I have never seen so much peyote in my life. It was just, just awesome because, you know, how scarce it is. But uh, it, let, let's uh, go ahead and start from the beginning and tell us about this film, and then we'll open it up to uh, questions from some of the rest of them. Well, maybe I'll, I'll just, yeah, give some context if people haven't seen it. So, I mean, the show in general, the intention and um, the container that we create is to document uh, the, the, the usage of entheogenic medicines of plants and animal. We had to stretch it to earth medicines because of the toad in episode one. Um, but it's not just focusing on the medicine. It's really focusing on the role of the practitioner or facilitator or medicine man or woman who is in indigenous sense, usually considered a caretaker of that medicine in the, the, the planet itself, Gaia, as you have mentioned from the Greek goddess of the earth um, or Pachamama, as I might say in, uh, in uh, Amazon basin, um, this sense of the planet is alive and she secretes these substances. And when they are ingested by uh, 
other other species, including not just humans. You know, you may have seen some of those document those footage of like a jaguar in Peru gnawing on ayahuasca vine or something. Like all animals like to get high, essentially, right? It's like they like to relieve this level of consciousness by going to an expanded consciousness. And Terence used to say that this is potentially, and it wasn't just Terence, it was Bear Owsley and it was uh, Heard, I think as well, one of the poets from the 60s, that these substances that are essentially um, could be considered exopheromones or that there's uh, interspecies mediators and activators on a chemical level, that they open up this connection to planetary intelligence and what we might say the web of life. And that's sort of what we say when we're, we mean when we say Gaia or Pachamama or other Western labels we might, we might give it, that there is this planetary intelligence that is so much bigger than us, we're embedded within it, like one strand in the planetary biome, and that it actually secretes the, the modulating interfaces so that you can access a greater bandwidth of planetary intelligence. And we used to do this and that, you know, the, the role of shamanism has um, kept the flame alive as the gatekeeper in their communities in an indigenous sense to, again, riffing off one of Terence's old sayings, the planet has a plan involving the plants. It's all in the etymology of the words. There's, a, there's an assembly line coming from Gaian consciousness to all of its species to remember, to plug back in. And essentially humans have spent the last 13,000 years or so having fallen out of that feedback loop with the planet. And so the idea of the show is to, is to help us remember that these are not substances to be demonized. In fact, they're revered in indigenous cultures who are caretakers of them. And that there is now a movement in the West to engage with shamanism and to learn from indigenous cultures and caretakers. And that there are a whole generation or two of our Western facilitators, neo-shamans, apprentices, neophytes, but they have a, a desire and a deep reverence um, and we're all remembering and relearning. So that's what the show is about. And in the reason I give that introductory context is episode one with the, the, uh, with Octavio Reddick and the, the, the Buffel various toad, he's really a hybrid shaman. You know, he did train with indigenous cultures. This episode was very different. We were invited down uh, by, um, uh, the Mexican crew who been working with the Wicholes, Wicholes, and uh, this is something which was a pilgrimage. It was a holy um, journey, and it wasn't just when we say the the the, the Wicholes or the, the Wicholes, that's a whole community in their thousands, almost tens of thousands, and there are many maracames or medicine people from many representatives of many towns who go out looking for the peyote. So we went with this one collection from their village with uh, Don Jose. And Don Jose is uh, an elder. He's in his early 60s, I think he was. He's been doing this since he was 10. It shows so much of the similarities of across the planet of the role of the medicine person, you know, training from an early age, how they're selected, and why, what they're selected to do, not just to be caretakers of the medicine, but to then be interfaces for their community in engaging with the medicine. And in this episode, it's very different from... Uh, episode one in some senses and um, maybe even from what I consider the, the Western shamanic sort of backpacking circuit, you know, the, the traveling curanderos or the localized communities of Western facilitators in that this is thousands of year, years old lineage and that this is a pilgrimage they go on to collect the medicine to last them all year long. And for the majority of the episode, this was what was so different. Don Jose didn't speak a lot of English, so there was some 
uh, logistical issues around getting the guts of information we wanted to the degree we usually like to get. But it created this openness in this space where then for three days of following him almost 24-7, you know, morning and night, he would pray. He would pray to the water. He would pray to the land. He would pray to the clouds and the sky and the sun. He would sacralize. He would follow the ancient protocols of reverence and of giving the life energy back to the earth to purify enough to then approach the peyote on the hunt. There's an intimate journey to even get to the medicine. And that was very different than um, walking up for a ceremony on a Friday night or a weekend or even you know, being part of a retreat and going as Westerners down to the jungle or somewhere to do the medicine. What we saw in this episode was uh, the lineage of the Marakame and the traditions that he holds that help the spirit world interface with the human world and to keep his community together and to renew the sacred contract of prayer uh, as part of the role of the shaman. And that, it really blew me away. It really reminded me of this importance, as I like to say, the ceremony of life never ends. The same lessons we learn in a container of a earth medicine ceremony, why do we think it stops? The medicine might stop, but the medicine is within and the protocols and what you learn of how to approach life, how to engage with it, are very much reinforced in this episode and through the example of uh, the Marikames and the Wichol. Oh, that's beautiful. Niles, you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, the, and the dynamic of this episode is very ecologically based, as Rack highlighted. You know, it's not just about the actual, it is about the medicine. It is about these, doing it in the right ceremonial container for both healing and for the expansion of consciousness. But this episode is very much highlighting the ritual practice of Don Jose during this pilgrimage. You know, he's essentially doing magical rituals the whole time. So the ceremony isn't just, yes, like the final day. It's very much the whole process through the pilgrimage. And as Rack said, cleansing and clarifying. Because, you know, this, I mean, so much of this pilgrimage process is like a growing of a heart through the spirit of the place, the union with the land, you know, knowing that they're not separate from land or separate from nature, but they're actually embedded in it and part of it. And that's why you, when we, in the two experiences that we have had, filming indigenous peoples, you know, they're beautiful peoples. Their spirit is beautiful. They obviously have difficult lives. I mean, trying dynamics with the modern day of commerce and, you know, current, our current form of kind of post-truth capitalism that doesn't honor life or earth. So there's all these struggles that we see, but we also see the beauty and the, and the passion of the people. So it's not only the, the people and the medicines, it's also just the whole ecological angle as well. And that's, um, that's something that I think this, is a beautiful thing to be able to highlight through the episodes. So it's a multi-stage approach. You, you know, something, a feeling I got, because I kind of lost track of, you know, what day or how long this was going on. But be, what it looked like is that, all you know, through the course of it, it didn't look like they felt you were a film crew or anything. You looked like just part of the gang, you know. It was like you were taking mm-hmm. home movies, the way they, they seemed to welcome you into the, the family, it looked like. Yeah. You know, if I had a superhero power, Lorenzo, I'd just turn myself invisible so I could be this like fly on the wall documentarian. But it's interesting. They're pretty, they're pretty comfortable with being photographed. And as somebody that tries to be very incognito, when you kneel down next to somebody doing a prayer and stick a big camera in their face, you know, they, they were really good about it. So I love is I love documentary film, just working with real people and documenting real life. And as we know, I mean, there's so much magic and wonder and amazingness to the world and to what is really reality that, Sometimes, you know, 
fiction is, is not nearly as powerful as what's actually happening right there in front of you. And as we know, I mean, there's so many indigenous ceremonies that have been suppressed or wiped out and, and to highlight some of these special, almost like, I don't want to pretentiously say never before been filmed, but almost never before been captured on camera things is very, is very special. So like you said, you know, having not been so familiar with the Huchol people, this indigenous part of Mexico, the fact that they've been doing this pilgrimage to this sacred land of Huaracuda for thousands of years. And like most people have no idea what this looks like, what the experience is, how the peyote looks, how it's har- how it's harvested, how it's, uh, you know, the processes behind it. Same thing with the Sonoran desert toad that we highlighted in the first episode. It's like people have no idea how the, how the medicine is extracted. You know, people still think, still think it's licking toads, these type of things. So it's, it's great to highlight how it's always been done through time and show that on camera. And, and you, the, the two of you do it really, really well, as, as uh, everybody will see here. I, I, I urge you all to, uh, to watch this uh, documentary uh, while you have this chance because it, it's something you can tell your friends about and that'll help raise some money for these guys to, to do more of this. So uh, how, how many days was this whole pilgrimage over? How long did it take? <clears throat> yeah, it was three days. It's, well, that was gnarly. Yeah. Three days. Brutal. I think it was like a week a week shoot that we're away, but it was like, I mean, the thing is Don Jose was a very busy man. And it's like, it's like indigenous tribes on a mission. It's like, they're like a thousand miles away and they had to get to, uh, you know, this where we started in the city and then we had to find them. And it was sort of like Chinese whispers and grapevine and phone calls and waiting, a lot of waiting. And, you know, a day would go by and then all of a sudden, boom, it's on. And then you go, and then you got to catch up. And there was probably about 50 people in the entourage of the whole community or maybe more in like one or two minivans and cars. And then we would all like, you know, like collectively move from one spot to the other. And there was just, there was always something that had to be done, like building a fire, preparing a fire, doing the cleansing, doing the praying, sacralizing the land. So it was, it was nonstop and it was just, it was three days and it it was, it was, we, we did do, um, you can get it in in the download. There's a ten dollar version of the the download of the film and an extra audio hour and then an extra audio um, podcast we did talking about the making. And in that we whinge a bit. We like, oh my god, we were sleeping on the the desert floor with like just a sleeping bag for three nights and there was no coffee and we didn't sleep and we were sleeping like two hours a night or something. And and then you have to be on camera and. It, it was the most challenging filmmaking uh, environment I think I've ever been in. And I, I don't want to do it as challenging again, but you know what? We probably will if we have to. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Right. yeah. And it's a good point to highlight that this is a small, this is a small group of the witch people that we're highlighting in this episode. And there's, there's thousands of witch and they all go on their annual pilgrimage. And think about how difficult this was to do before the advent of having all of them hop in a van and drive on back roads through Mexico. I mean, they used to do this by foot. So, my contention is that this pilgrimage used to take them a very long time, Lorenzo. You know, it would be multiple weeks to go gather the peyote. Yeah. But the, the peyote itself is such an amazing little entity. It looks like this, you know, little amazing Frank Herbert Dune sci-fi worm fractal thing that's just this amazing little cactus. It's very small. It's about the size of a muffin, for those that don't know. And it can grow in various clusters where it's clustered together. But, of course, the primary component in the peyote is mescaline. And you don't, when you're actually looking for it in the, in Weracuda, Weracuda is not a very barren desert. It's actually quite lush. It looks like you're almost in this jungle desert, 
but it has a very special resonance to it when you're there and you can see why it's such a special sacred land. The peyote obviously does grow up into the United States, but Huaracuda is the central area of, of Mexico where they have been going to gather it. And um, when you actually see it, it's very difficult to spot. It's, it's, it's not, it's usually below ground. So there's only this little feather that you can see protruding through the dirt. So they've become very good at spotting it and, and actually extracting it. And it's very important to extract it in a very specific way where you don't cut too much of the root off. This is all shown in the episode. But all these practices are important to know because of the sustainability around harvesting it and their practices of gathering the special medicine. But um, the experience of it is what we, we highlight as well in that audio that Rack mentions, because as we are very much like, like you mentioned, Lorenzo, part of very much a part of this is just being gonzo journalists. There's a huge journalistic aspect to what we're doing making this right. show. So we do end up, of course, experiencing the medicine in the, con the ritual context with the tribe. And it's very life-changingly beautiful to experience the medicine in that regard under the moon and the stars and the sacred land with the tribal people. So, so uh, uh, one thing I did, did want to point out that, you know, uh, I've got friends that, that have, uh, grow piaute or have grown and you know, I've seen them all individual in, in pots, but I had never seen a, a cluster before, uh, especially mm -hmm. on a single root. Uh, it was, that was pretty awesome. And also to be able to see the, the safe way that they uh, harvested it so they didn't damage the root. That was, that was really important to see that, I think. I think that was a pretty special find because we could have probably gone out, you know, numerous years and never seen kind of a star cluster like that, that we did. So that was a pretty special um, capture on film there, wasn't it? And for those that haven't seen the episode, there's a section towards the end where we actually show the what's not called a peyote hunt to use the proper etymology. We're not hunting for medicines, we're searching for them. But on the peyote search, there's this cluster. It's like essentially a mound of what looks like, I don't know how many think it is rack. It's at least 50 peyote growing together and they kind of grow in this weird in these bundles where it's a single muffin and then you've got the main muffin and then these kind of side tertiary muffins and this one mound probably has a cluster of about 50 of them so it's pretty special to see that it? It, it's worth the whole film just to see that that's something you'll never <laughs> see again in your life i mean it was awesome just blew me away <laughs> yeah and we appreciate your your nice words lorenzo because you know I, I remember seeing a lecture with john anthony west the egyptologist recently and he had a good point where he was talking about how you know, that they were talking in front of a lecture hall and for however many people, you know, give a shit about this, it seems like there's thousands of other people that could care less. So we yeah. certainly appreciate your insights and your willingness to help just kind of share the, the element because Rack and I, as we highlighted, we're so uncommercial that it's something where you just have to let this type of material be known word of mouth. It's like any good book or excellent podcast like yours, the only way people are going to find it is from references from word of mouth. So we certainly appreciate that. That's why most artists are starving is because, you know, they, they, they're not, they don't want to be salespeople, you know, and I don't blame them, you know, that uh, you want to get on to your next creation and, and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully we can keep this moving along. I think there's so much going on now all of a sudden since uh, we're on pause that uh, it's easier to communicate with people because they're not spending the best days or hours of every day uh, doing something for uh, something they don't want to do anyhow. So well, that's, here, and, and you know, that's the struggle of every artist through all of time, right? Like it's like Michelangelo didn't want to have to paint what the church commissioned him to paint. He wanted to do his own thing. So it's like, right. It's been like that for eons. I mean, he, he turned that job down quite a few times for the <laughs> really kind of forced to do it. You know. So, so let's open it up here. Does uh, somebody else here uh, have any questions? Go, go ahead, Evan. 
Oh, here's a question. Are you still connected with the people you filmed? Any plans for following them and supporting them in any way? You know, this is a really great question because I originally reached out to, um, to Edgar, who is our connection to the tribe, and I asked him, you know, how can we share insights on what's helpful for the tribe? Because, of course, you know, they're always dealing with their struggles financially, having to somewhat assimilate into the modern machine of commerce and capitalism. So I don't have an initial answer on the sensitivities of just trying to, you know, throw money at indigenous people. But one thing that they are constantly struggling with is that there is a, a mining company that's always trying to go into Wiracuda and do shady things to the land, specifically, you know, pollute the water and whatnot. And it's not just physical problems with what that could entail with the natural landscape of Wiracuda, but also the energetics behind the ley lines of the land and the special energies of the properties of the soil and whatnot. So if there's any way that we can help provide information on being a being using a community to help speak out against that. That certainly could be helpful for the, for the witch hole. And um, I can continue to ask Edgar if there's ways that the tribe can be benefited by people that watch the episode. That's kind of my initial insight to give. I mean, the, the thing with this one, I mean, there's a lot of um, discussion in the larger, essentially, well, Western and indigenous shamanic communities around sustainability which is really necessary you know because these indigenous cultures have been the caretakers of the medicines and they are open to the west uh partaking of them and remembering and relearning the ways and yet the the relentless sort of um plant medicine tourism maybe has created supply and demand issues where you know, there's been talk within ayahuasca communities of if you use one vine, plant one vine, some type of sustainability initiatives. Um, and we're seeing that that drain of the depletion happening with all of the earth medicines. I mean, um, peyote has been, if not endangered, I think the key word I came across in my research was depleted, especially in... Um, in America where it's a different scenario with the native American churches and you know, that where they've been growing peyote and maybe in even larger numbers in the, the, the witch old traditions, they still have access throughout the original land areas of Mexico, the, the, the sacred spaces where the, the peyote originally grew and where, where it's been replanted to grow. Um, but it's still a depleted resource. And I know that, you know, some of the Maracames and Don Jose is one of them. He is known on the international um, arena as uh, you know, a, a medicine person who also serves to a wider Western community, not like every day, it's not his regular thing. He, he's very much involved um, in service to his local community, but as part of that, he does do outreach on an international level and has hosted ceremonies and traveled uh, in the more Western interface of traveling medicine people. Um, but they, um, they definitely need, need support moving forward and all, all the medicines do. So I think we need to, find a way to make medicines sustainable and the usage of medicines sustainable while we're remembering what it's all about. I think that's enough. Of the next I, 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 I mean, I appreciate your question and, and the, the, the shape that it's trying to form in the, the imagination. Uh, I mean, I, I think our show is very much rooted in uh, an understanding of not just indigenous shaman, but the Western interface with it, you know, like people like Terence and, Wade Davis and, and, you know, dozens and dozens of, of others who have come before us. And part of that uh, cultural discourse has been that, you know, this idea of the archaic revival or this idea that this, these aren't new 
Um, we're not searching for new knowledge. We're, we're maybe searching for a new way, but it's pretty likely that the new way is the old way or a, a retrofit of the old way or engaging with very old pathways, both neurologically, um, you know, and environmentally and in, in consciousness. I mean, nothing is new here, but we need to have the new thing is the willingness of Western culture to go beyond what Western culture is, which is to a large degree, there's many ways you could slice it up, but it's distant from the earth. It's separated from the earth. It's visited as a resource to draw upon. And in my opinion, it, it's evincing a very dynamic and ingrained and indoctrinated species PTSD that is part of our uh, psychological separation, the wounding, the original wounding of Western culture 13,000 years ago in the lower dryad event that happened that almost wiped us out that we've all been so separated from nature that there's only certain pockets of humanity that have retained a relationship with the planet. So the old ways seem like they've survived into the modern era. And if the modern era is going to survive into the future, it needs to um, remember the old ways and make them work in a modern context. So that's the new bit that I think you're getting to. But I think it's a marriage of the ancient and, and the, the futuristic. Well, yeah, and indigenous people have been such beautiful caretakers of of timeless things that have worked, you know, in terms of living sustainably with Gaia and the ecosystem and cosmos and our environment. So there is an element of that that will always be consistent through all the episodes. And we don't want to be, you know, white man coming in and culturally appropriating some indigenous tribe, even though obviously there's plenty of shamanic influence from the Northern Europeans and into Siberia and whatnot. It's not like shamanism belongs only to exclusively to indigenous people. It essentially belongs to everybody. So I think that the interest in the show from a Western perspective is people becoming interested in these old ancient ways, regardless of where they came from that, um, you know, are, are everybody's and we're once everybody's and we've kind of forgotten who we are and where we're, where we've been and where we're going. So as people do remember, that legacy of, of a timeless way to live in harmony with nature and, you know, nature's spirituality, nature's spirit through these medicines. It's like that, that will continue to be shown and highlighted through the series and always, always with deep, deep respect and appreciation and invitation from uh, those communities that let us document them. I totally agree. And I think that that's one of the key differentiators of this show and other documentaries that look at, um, psychedelics or, or entheogens, um, that it's a global village. And, you know, these, the whole words and the whole focus has is, is been, um, been very orchestrated of what we're really looking at and what the themes are that are embedded in this is that everyone is Indigenous to planet Earth. And this separation in the West that sees Indigenous people on the land, yes, it's true, but also, you know, what was the old slogan in the 60s they, they had it was an anarchist saying it was like underneath the concrete the beach you know underneath the facade of the culture that we built is still mother earth and she wants us back she wants us to connect she wants us to be in right relationship we can make a globe civilization if we remember what we're making it with, not just on but with you know in concert in relationship with the earth sustainable and localized and empowering and so these medicines can empower us, they can connect us, they can heal to some degree um, the, the disharmony in our beings when we're out of balance in a kind of squatsy type of way, a world out of balance. 
Um, and this global village, think of it, it's like in the olden days, a village used to have, let's just say, and this is archetype and it's just pulled out of a hat here, but if a one to 100 ratio of one medicine person looking after 100 people in a village, and now we've got like 7 billion people, there's a certain ratio of nodal points and interfaces needed. But essentially what it's getting to is that everyone has this potential to reconnect. Everyone actually has a need, whether they're recognizing it or not. I'm not saying everyone has to do psychoactive medicine, but what I'm saying is underneath the, the egoic structure of the species PTSD in the West specifically, we have the ability to connect to ourselves and to the planet. And I feel that all the medicines are saying after all the beautiful visions and the healing they, they give, it's like, hey, humans, remember, you can do this too. You are the medicine. We're all alive. We're all divine. We're all connected. We're going to remind you of the way home, but you're the one who has to walk that path. You can do this. And so this global village is really what it's all about. We are, and we're seeing this now, the, the, the incredibly unprecedented transformative pressures that are on us now. We need the wisdom that is so ripe and ready within each of us and within Indigenous cultures and within Western cultures. We just need to remember what's really important and then, and then to, to act on that moving forward. So in the global village, there are shamans and essentially we're all medicine holders in the global, global village if we uh, accept that call, if we self-initiate and if we uh, work with the, the planet who wants to bring us home. Yeah, and, and I, we are I the medicine, that, you know. Exactly, and I think that's, that's a, a perfect segue into what I was thinking, uh, to plant a little uh, bee in your bonnets as far as uh, going forward. One of the, the, first of all, the, the title of your series is absolutely perfect, Shamans of the Global Village, because never before in human history have we really had 90% of the people on pause thinking that, hey, this is a village. You know, people, countries uh, are exchanging goods uh, for, for the most part. Even, even California sent some respirators to Trump. So, uh, you know, there is some goodwill coming about here. But what I would like to hear is, is to add one other thread to your, your, your uh, documentary of these people is to ask them, what advice they have for us because they know what's going on too. And, you know, I'd like to know what they think about what's going on. How can their culture lead our dissociated people back to the earth? What do they have that they can teach us rather than just say, you know, we understand for your culture, this is good. They've got something they can teach us. They've been living with the land for centuries, you know, millennia, and they, they've been uh, revering it, you know, treating it properly uh, in spite of everything that's happening with the mines going in, the clear cuts and all. So, you know, maybe you could, could help us uh, get some information from them about what advice they have for how the West can rebuild uh, culturally, which includes economics. But it's just a mm -hmm. thought. But I think that, that they do have a lot to teach us beyond just their ceremonies. Uh, they, they have a lot of wisdom. They haven't, they haven't been able to survive the, the Western uh, culture coming in all these years without uh, knowing a lot about what they're doing. Hey, what are they mining? Hmm, good question. Yeah, I think it's a silver mine. Silver. Yeah, silver. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's, it's underground, and so the, the government's made these concessions to international mining companies, and they're meant to be 
protecting the area, but there's no way you can drain the artesian water supply underneath the holly of holiest lands in the desert and not have it affect, um, you know, the ecosystem and the, the, the POT and other creatures in that area. And then there's issues about runoff and pollution from that. And so it's crazy. It's like, you know, when, what was it when the Bastille burnt down and they, they raised a billion dollars in a, two days to repair it? And the, the land, you know, for Indigenous people they, who understand the planet is alive. It's not, it's not just like a, a church you've built over there from dead trees that is like a symbol. It's a living organism. It's alive. And you can't gut it. You can't take things from it without affecting the whole web of life. And yet again, that's what the the historical Western um, paradigm sees and does. And that's, that's what we're trying to heal. And, you know, human beings for all of our destruction and this, you know, pathological pursuit of profit that we're many, many eons into like realizing is a bad idea by this point. We're also such beautiful, we have such beautiful capabilities for stewardship and being stewards of the earth. So that's something Lorenzo that I think is a consistent thing that they say is that obviously the commodification of the elements of earth, air, fire, and water will not last. And we're starting to see, you know, we've been seeing that meltdown for a long time where we have just a staggeringly small amount of people that have so many resources. Well, so many other people are just in this endless fight or flight or being redlined, not to mention how anybody that tries to do anything creative, how much of a struggle that is. And this is a, you know, raconized version of trying to manifest some creativity and, deal with the endless kind of struggles of that. But in the grand scheme of your first world problems, those are very small problems. You know, it's not like we're in some refugee ship drowning in the Mediterranean right now. So the fact that we even get a chance to do this show is a special thing. But at the same time, it's like we see that indigenous people always will share that inside of like not commodifying the elements. It's not like Nestle can sell us bottles of corporate water. To piggyback on what Lorenzo was saying, it might be something where you could add in like an interview, like related to like hearing it from those indigenous people could be like a mini series that leads to like the promotion of, of these episodes you're doing. That might be like a way to maximize the amount of time you're doing and get those messages out. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's a good idea, man. It, Cause it's always nice to share extra content that we've had, especially when you're interviewing some, you know, wise elder from a tribe and a lot of what they say doesn't get put in the final edit. So a lot of that is great to add as extra stuff with this, with this shoot, it was so brutal and grueling that we had very little coverage. We basically used every mm-hmm. nanite of footage. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have a lot of coverage this time, but it, it's good to do that type of thing of extra content, extra wisdom, And then even the music, you know, there's such beautiful music that the indigenous people make that to add that music as extras is is lovely. Because a lot of people really resonate with just natural, amazing indigenous music. And to put that in as extra juicy nuggets of of special creation is good too. Special content. Right now, before I sign this thing off, Evan and Niles, you need to exchange email information because (laughs) Niles, I think you found your marketing guy here. Yeah, that's what I was going to say earlier. Um, Rack, Rack gave me his email. I'm typing it up right now. Oh, great. Yeah, great. So, Good. Yeah, we're off the ground. So if people haven't seen the episode, there is some very poignant bits where we do ask uh, Don Jose about these times, and this was last March in, in 2019. Uh, but we asked him about sort of the ecological catastrophe and how that reflects on the, the, the separation from the earth and Western culture and how specifically what he's doing in terms of not just 
consuming peyote, but praying and sacralizing and using the interface of, of this earth medicine to reconnect how that assists and helps the planet, uh, you know, work with us and what the value of that is. So he does have a very powerful ecological message in relation to his plant medicine usage uh, in the film as well. It is in there. Yeah, I, I, I remember seeing that in there and, and it's, it's one of the more important points. And, and I, my only suggestion was to uh, in particularly in your marketing to uh, focus on, on how it's an ecological message there and also in future ones to do exactly what Evan is uh, saying to get, you know, some pointed things, you know, we have had a major ecological problem. It came in the form of a virus, but it's caused all kinds of ramifications and is going to be with us for years in the, everything that happened. And, and I think, uh, I think I don't have to say anything more because Evan has better ideas than I do. And uh-huh. Evan is also the name of my only grandson. So I love the name. Oh, respect. Yeah, cool. Respect. Yeah. You guys could also always, you know, bring another video creator on board and they could handle those tedious extra things for you. So absolutely. Two camera, two camera shoots always great. So well, listen, it's, it's I'll, funny. I'll, yeah, it's funny that said because we the last two episodes, you know, we had people help us that just were, were, came along as friends, and of course they're not professional crew, but we get beautiful stuff just because of people that are willing to take part in something excellent. So it's it's fun. It's it's we're process oriented. We're not so much goal oriented. Well, before we sign off here tonight, uh, Rack and Niles will give you the last uh, word here. Uh, do you have any final uh, messages you'd like to give? Uh, uh, in addition to what all words of wisdom you've already given us. Um, we, we didn't really talk much about, about the peyote itself, but it's in the film and, you know, there's a, um, some beautiful sort of sound bites of emotional truth that came, came through. And for me, you know, what the peyote, the difference with the, the plant allies and the spirits in the different medicines, they can be very similar in terms of relaxing or lowering the default mode network and the sense of mind and very hard opening. And that was definitely true with Biode. And it, it really felt like, um, you know, the, the, um, the connection in the heart space was all about being welcome, being welcomed back into the song of the world for me and the understanding that it's all vibration and it's not separate vibration. It's all something that if we can just resensitize from this armoring and this shutting down, we open up to not just visions, but to this feeling of connection that is actually like an ongoing, beautiful celestial orchestra that we're part of, that our energetic vibration is a note in the planetary Icaro. And that, you know, um, that, that is, uh, that's a beautiful belonging and a beautiful sense of rejoining. And that it also, it has a purpose. It has a meaning that reconnection that the song wants to be sung, that it wants us to connect and to join our voices to the planetary voice. And that there's something very beautiful in, in that relationship. So I encourage us all to um, sing beautifully. Rack, you are one of my favorite poets. You probably don't consider yourself a poet, but you truly are. <laughs> The bar. And Niles, Niles, do you uh, have any final words of wisdom for us? I do. I mean, thank you so much for coming, everybody. I mean, we're we're honored to have a, a nice group chat. I wasn't expecting this many people here, but it's delightful to see everybody. So we certainly appreciate that you show some interest in the series and that all I ask in just sharing it is that you just share the website. So um, in, in the sense of Rack's beautiful wrap-up there, uh, we just say thank many thanks and uh, yahoo. 
it. So until uh, until next time, everybody, hey, keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs> and for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends. <laughs>